this is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. It illuminates illuminate the face. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. All right, everybody, you're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss. I'm your co-host, John Pastelli, and I'm here with the Tiger Bomb, Sam Worthington. Hi, John, and that's Balm with A-L, not O-M in the middle of it. We're talking about Watchmen today. Who watches the Watchmen? American the greatest graphic novel of all time. A masterwork representing the apex of artistry. You know, you could tell a book is you could tell a book is good when, when the what do you call the blurbs on the back, mm-hmm. are as memorable as some of the moments in the book. Yeah, the greatest piece of popular fiction ever. The produced. greatest piece of popular fiction ever produced. Yeah, might be yeah. true. You think so? Well, depending on what popular fiction is. But... Well, you'll have plenty of time today to justify that. Yeah, that claim and show the world your allegiances of uh, that you have with the visual arts, graphic novels. Maybe talk a little bit about your life, um, because I know you've been in this world for a long time. This is a world that I've just begun to step into. Before we go into a discussion on The Watchmen, maybe you can provide a little context. But before you provide a little context, um, um, here's a curveball. Who's your favorite character and your least favorite character? In Watchmen? Yeah. My favorite character is Dr. Manhattan. I think because of his um, consciousness and his consciousness of time and his mastery of time and space, I think it's like this model of subjectivity that is almost the subjectivity of the book itself. And uh, because the way, as as maybe I'll explain later, the way he perceives the world is mimicked in the form of the text. And so mm. he is the self-awareness of the book mm. and he is the consciousness of the author and so I find that very fascinating. So we can, what you're saying is we can read graphic novels, this graphic novel, the way that Dr. Manhattan reads the universe. Yes. Yeah. That's a nice little, what, what would you call that? A nice little metonymy or a nice little synecdoche, a nice yeah. little part for the whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A nice little part for the whole. Yeah. So that's he, that's my favorite character. My least favorite character, that's a tough one. I'm going to cheat and say like Laurie <laughs> yes Laurie um, I'm going to cheat and say my least favorite character is the protagonist of the pirate comic book within the pirate within the, the comic book right because that while I grasp the several different points he was making with that it goes on at extraordinarily tedious length um, and that's one part I tend to skip when I reread the book and I don't find it very additive additive it's it's not a he couldn't have told a more complicated story because it would have been two, you know, multiple tracks running. So, but it's just this kind of lyrical, monotonous. This man is marooned. He's, you know, put makes the raft of dead men. He's attacked by the shark. It's not very interesting. Well, it's it's a morbid fixation. Yeah. That 
that I'll say something more intelligent about later. Right. I was told you should think about death three times a day. Any more is morbid, any less is naive. That's interesting. Who, who told you that? Christopher Ricks. Christopher? Ricks. Who's, oh, Christopher. I know who Christopher Ricks yeah. is. Okay. Okay, good. I thought you were going to say some YouTube guru some or something. jackass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> New age jackass. <clears throat> yes. No, it makes sense that that came, came out of a British sensibility, though. Yes, that is true. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. the British sensibility is worried about morbidity. They are? <laughs> I think so. Brits are concerned with death. They're concerned with death, but they're also concerned with uh, being a little bit, you know, respectable, stoic, uh, buttoned up. So you right. wouldn't want to be pretentious. About your concern of death? Yeah. Whereas in America, we we sublimate it in inappropriate ways. Right. And we culturally um, permitted. Yeah. Um, or in some way, never thinking about anything else. Yeah. But if we think about it all the time, then do we think about it at all? Right. Exactly. It's kind of what The Watchman is about. The Watchman is about a couple of things. It's about multiple things. Yeah, it's about moving towards death for sure. Yes. Now, I asked that question because I wanted to answer it, mm-hmm. not because I wanted to hear your answer. Okay, well, go ahead, Sam. <laughs> Who is your favorite and your least favorite character? My favorite character is Laurie. Okay. Every time Laurie's uh, streaking across a panel, mm-hmm. I feel at home in this novel. Right. Laurie's an authentic person. We get the most of Laurie's upbringing, her conditioning. She's been tossed through by forces beyond her control her whole life. She's been thrust into the, these these narratives, these nouveau narratives of history, and she's maintained her attitude and her moxie and her in her belief in self-defense and her moral code. So I'm a big fan of Laurie. Lori, I'm I'm attracted to Lori. Uh, <laughs> I I wish I was Dan Dryberg. <laughs> right. I relate to Dan Dryberg. Now here's here's uh, here's my least favorite character, mm-hmm. Doctor Manhattan. Oh boy! Okay. <laughs> All right. What a fucking what a load of 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 scientific uh, masturbatory uh, self self-aggrandizement i give him that he didn't control his fate now i lied this was a front my favorite character is actually the comedian Mm. more on that later right jokes on you (laughs) okay okay so wait give me some some context for this this novel all right this novel all right um so, well, now I feel compelled to defend Dr. And Manhattan. he killed Rorschach. <laughs> he killed Rorschach, right. Well, yes, that is the, the ending is flawed in multiple respects. Um, when I say Dr. Manhattan's my favorite character, I don't mean the most morally admirable character, but the one I find most interesting to think about. Um, I think someone called that blue-ass Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> blue blue balls. Right, right, <laughs> uh, so some context. I'll give you a couple different contexts. So this book was published in the mid-80s, 1986. It was published by the major American superhero comic book publisher, DC Comics. Um, However, it was written by a British writer named Alan Moore during a period where DC Comics was headhunting British talent from that relatively small Mm. industry. And they, the British writers, such as Alan Moore and other names you might be familiar with, would be like Neil Gaiman or Grant Morrison, 
they were bringing a new sensibility into the world of superhero comics, which had existed since the 1930s, was initially created largely by working class immigrants of Jewish background, of sometimes Italian-American background, uh, people who are not part of the American mainstream. However, by the 60s, the 70s, the second and third generations of superhero comics are being created by middle-class American fans who'd grown up reading this material. So it had maybe become a little bit stale um, by the by the genre of superheroes. So the, the high point, the breakthrough high point, uh, the the impact of this new new form and authenticity occurred post-war in the, in the United States through immigrant... Yeah, just pre-war, 1930s. Pre-war, okay, through immigrant labor and imagination mm-hmm. and, and continues through the 60s with that generation mm-hmm. but by the time this is be- watchman is being written it had lost its luster i would say i mean there was a lot of creative work being done um and you know the 60s brought a kind of visionary impetus you know a lot of people on psychedelic drugs in the 70s doing mm-hmm. comics um and there were innovations, but that raw, gritty sense of the vigilante, of the outcast, of the of the downtrodden. You know, Superman in his first appearance is labeled on the first page of his first appearance as the champion of the oppressed. Mm. And that sense, I think, had gone away. And then in the 80s, when DC starts headhunting after this British talent, they're bringing in writers who were of working class background. So Alan Moore born in 1953 in uh, Northampton, England, which is right in the middle of England, to a working-class, relatively impoverished family. He goes through his adolescence in the 60s, so he is, for instance, expelled from his school for dealing acid. Um, Excellent. And was involved in the counterculture at the time. And then, and one of my favorite stories about him, he gets married young, and he's working all these shit jobs, like literally like cleaning toilets and things mm-hmm. like that. And he ends up, his wife comes in and says, I'm pregnant. And he says, all right, I'm quitting my job mm-hmm. because if I, I want to be a writer, I want to be an artist, I want to do comic books, I want to do art, I've always been interested in this, and you're pregnant, if I don't do this now, it's never going to happen. Mm. So he quits his job and he throws himself into the world of comics mm. and ends up having a pretty steady ascent through the early 80s till he's discovered by DC and brought to the United States, not not physically, but as a as a creator, as a talent. Mm-hmm. And he's doing this book in his, I guess, mid-30s and the 80s when he's getting to the peak of his abilities mm-hmm. in collaboration with the, the artist. The height of his powers. The height of his powers, as yeah. they say on the blurbs. Um, blurbs speak. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the greatest piece of <laughs> And he's a character, we could talk about him for two hours and we, we won't, um, but he ends up after this book, he leaves mainstream American comics. He ends up in a, a menage a trois with his wife and another woman. Their marriage breaks up. He starts an independent, independent mm-hmm. publishing company that fails. He converts to being an occultist, mm-hmm. worships a snake deity. Um, and oh boy. his later work is informed by these, including performance art as well as comics, and then now he's writing fiction, prose fiction. He just did, well, a couple of years ago, he did a 1,200-page um, novel that I haven't finished reading yet called Jerusalem. Um, so It is outstandingly written. Yeah. Watchmen. Yeah, there's no equal to Alan Moore's verbal ability in, in Anglo-American comics. Um, 
Cer- and, and certainly and, not before him, maybe after him. Some and how, how would you describe that? Well, one of the things he's incredibly gifted at, I think there's two things that he's very gifted at. And in his later work, it becomes excessive um, and he'll annoy you. But, <laughs> but it, when he's at the height of his powers. Uh, when he's tuned in. When he's tuned in. Uh, the two things he's great at is mimicry. So he can mimicry, mimicry, he can mimicry, mimicry, parody, but, but the parody and verisimilitude, he can write in every register. He can mm. write working class speech, upper class speech. He can parody different literary styles. He can parody scientific papers. He can parody popular magazines, journalism. Yeah, Jour- yeah he can he can write in almost any genre. And then the other thing, which is maybe a little less evident in Watchmen than in some of his other books, but he can really ratchet up intensity to like a Faulknerian, Cormac McCarthyan type level. Uh, maybe the key moment in here is, I mean, again, Watchmen's not the best example, but um, you know his, his work of the 80s, his work on Swamp Thing, which I know if you don't know mm-hmm. what we're talking about, sounds incredibly stupid. But mm-hmm. uh, this the narrative voice, the long sentences, the torrid metaphors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Watchmen's more controlled than that, but there are still set pieces in Watchmen. Yeah. Um, like uh, Rorschach's speech to the psychiatrist Absolutely. about killing the child molester and realizing right. that there was nothing in life. Yeah, in one in one swift gesture, he can be cosmic and carnal and philosophic and 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 gorgeous. Yeah, which is uh, an amalgamation that's reserved for usually literary novelists, yes. literary artists. We're not part of the experience of reading Watchmen is being taken aback by a discordance of expectations that that level of prose is available in what in a common form or in a in a pop mm-hmm. childish mm-hmm. stigmatized form yeah does he play on that in the novel is he aware of that and smashes through it i think so i think through um you know, through things like Hollis uh, Mason's memoir, where he talks about the kind of like naivete he had of like reading these childish books and deciding to imitate them. There's um, one of the things Watchmen always reminds me of is Don Quixote. And I think the the reason is, uh, and Don Quixote is often called, this is not in any literal sense true, but it's often called the first novel or the mm-hmm. first great novel. And this is, you know, maybe the first great graphic novel. And they both make this gesture of taking a heroic form, the standard superhero comic or the chivalric romance for Cervantes, Mm -hmm. and bringing it down to earth and showing the real human motivations that would impel somebody to be interested in this genre and also showing the ways that the genre collides with reality. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes that, you know, perspective of stepping back from your mm. devotion to the genre to see it for for what it is well, what is a genre right so I'm, I'm maybe being confusing here so let's for the sake of this podcast let's let's introduce a little let's fake just take precision. a break and look at this look at this <laughs> panel of dr manhattan making out with Lori. yes i have a favorite panel by the way okay we'll reveal it later okay good um, but night owl wasn't is involved nice okay i don't know if i have a favorite panel i'd have to think about that um what did you ask me what's a genre what's a what is a genre yeah so we should be clear here so i think that the it's it's the the form can i just digress wildly for a minute yeah so this is in the form of 
comics. It uses, so if anybody's read the books, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, that's probably the premier treatise of the comics form, sort of the Aristotle's poetics of comics. And he he writes that book a little after Watchmen comes out in the, in the 90s. And he says, well, we need a definition for this form of art that is so stigmatized, as mm-hmm. you said, associated just with children. And he says, I'm going to give a formal definition. I'm going to say that comics is sequential art. So it's when you have two or more images placed in a deliberate sequence to convey information or a narrative. Mm -hmm. That's what comics is. And he differentiates that from like regular visual art, which is usually just one image. And cartoons. And cartoons, which is also just one image. Usually a one-panel cartoon, like a political cartoon or family circus. Doonesbury. (laughs) I don't know how many panels Doonesbury has. Um, But um, so the form is comics. And Alan Moore, when you pick Watchmen up and you look at it, you can see right away that he's playing with the form because he is the writer. Now, he does work with an artist, but if you know anything about Moore's work, he's very controlling. He writes very detailed scripts that give instructions to the artist. So much of the the form that you see can be attributed to his intention. It's so, admirable. Some people might say it's not, but... <laughs> well, some people didn't write fucking Watchmen. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I always think when I was a kid, I'm, I'm, I'm an old man now, so when I was a kid, the Beatles anthology was on, you know? Do you mm-hmm. know the Beatles anthology? Sure, the Beatles anthology. And I remember Paul McCartney replying to the critics of the White Album, and he said they all had all these little remarks. And he said, it's the bloody Beatles White Album. Shut up. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Um, but what Moore does with the form is he regularizes it. So every page of Watchmen is based on a grid of nine panels, three rows of three. And as you go through the book, even pages that have fewer panels than nine the composition of those panels are still mathematically based on that grid. And it creates this almost metronomic, almost poetic meter-like flow of the storytelling. Mm. And they weren't weren't the first to do this. I think they borrowed it from European comics um, where stuff like that was more common. But he uses it to really punctuate and pace and and manipulate the the emotions and the and the the delivery of the knowledge of the story well, and choreograph every page is a no panel stands alone every page right. is a is a troop of of flashing images yes which which whose whose elements might correspond in an instant or over time with elements in a in a panel opposite it mhm so nothing stands alone in the watchman there's there's movement and it's and there's a movement towards midnight so what else about the form um, anything that comes to mind so right so the other thing about it is that there every chapter ends with a prose supplement which is usually a an example of the media that's in the world of Watchmen because it creates its own alternate version of the United States in the mid eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a world in which, so the basic conceit of Watchmen is is twofold. One is that superheroes become real, so that when Superman comics are first published, 
First scene is death of a superhero. Yeah, exactly. So when they're first published, normal people decide to enact this role. Mm-hmm. But then the other element is superheroes become real in a different way. And this is where the book, which is in some ways very realistic, in some ways meant to ground the superhero in the the bloody, muddy, murk. excremental murk the of filth. reality, the yeah. filth. There is a supernatural or science fictional element, which is that one character, Dr. Manhattan, survives a nuclear test of course. accident and becomes godlike. And this alters the balance of the Cold War because now there's an American, American figure who could destroy the world with his atomic powers. So it envisions a unipolar American world in the mid-20th century going into the late 20th century. Well, it's a violation on both ends because, correct me if I'm wrong, but superheroes were never supposed to be omnipotent and they were never supposed to be in the quite so in the filth and in the murk. Right. So it's this fusion of high and low. So it's a hollowed-out center Yes. Or more respectable, high-powered, near invincible, but all but also vulnerable superheroes such as Batman, Spider-Man, Superman. Um, we don't have that stability of yeah. strength. Right. Alan Moore wants to crit- critique the superhero. He thinks it's a damaging American kind of this American ego ideal that allows the American empire to lie to itself about its good intentions as it marauds over the world. So these superheroes are not allowing the uh, Americans to lie to themselves about empire. Right. It's like, it's, it's, that's again, that's that Don Quixote gesture, the founding of realism in the novel, look in the mirror. This is what the world actually is, not some romantic image you have about Mm. it. Where you could abide safely in the benevolence of the... The vigilante, yeah, and if the vigilante isn't isn't um, implicated in like geopolitical schemes of terror and corruption, and right, like these characters are. Mm-hmm. So maybe moving from form to content. Yeah, did I answer the form question? I think so. Okay, more will probably be revealed. And we just said so. When I say so, form is the is comics and what they do with comics, and then genre is it's in the superhero genre, and it's a critique of that that genre because superheroes after the 30s became very much absorbed into the american cultural establishment they stood for the flag they stood for the american way Mm -hmm. sometimes actually most of the time very liberal ways um you know they represented a liberal vision Mm -hmm. of america kind of liberal internationalism Mm -hmm. to hark back to some of our earlier themes um and more is coming from a more hard left stance critiquing that an anti-imperial left I would say. I mean, he always called himself an anarchist, but there's lots of pictures of him in the 80s wearing a uh, hammer and sickle shirt. Mm, fashionable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he does, he does such a good job here of rendering characters that, that could only have emerged from an American cultural milieu like the, yeah. the 1970s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that theory? It takes... People who say an outsider can't write about a, a foreign culture, um, that's bogus, right? Yeah. Um, there's, there's so many examples of that. Mm-hmm. We, we were talk, uh, talking about, referring to that and um, when we were talking about cultural appropriation. Yeah, Henry so, James. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So more as, a, as an outsider to the U.S., how does he, what kind of characters does he generate? Why are they so biting and... And poignant and relatable and 
ghastly? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I mean, one answer to why he has such an insight into American culture, I think, isn't so much personal to him as, as reflects the status of uh, Britain in the world at that time that it became kind of culturally subordinate and pop culturally subordinate to the U.S. So he's somebody who grew up on American uh, mm. comics and American... Well, I mean, the music is interesting because you have rock and roll invented in America, transformed mm -hmm. in, in Britain, and mm -hmm. then there's a constant back and forth. But in any case, there's these American forms of art. And his favorite... When he talks about his favorite writers, he mentioned, he often mentions Burroughs and Pinchon, mm -hmm. um, and American writers as, mm -hmm. as his models. So I think this idea that he had spent, though he had never... I'm not even sure he visited America more than once before he wrote that book. Stunning. Um, he had spent a lot of time just immersed in American in front of the TV pop culture, right? Like of... Adrian Veidt, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, it, is there a character that stands out to you on that basis of being some incarnate, incarnated representation of like a pulsing, true American um, character? Is there one character in in the Watchmen that? that separates itself from the others? Hmm. Hmm, that's a good question. Maybe not. But I mean, I feel like the comedian and Rorschach... I think so. ...are both... Well, it's interesting. Rorschach is... was So Rorschach is the main vigilante character who would correspond to a Batman-like He's the figure. most productive. Yeah. Um, but Moore's intention... It's interesting because when he talks about this... Uh, more like any author, Moore's uh, books are more intelligent than he is. Um, and so when he talks about this, he just sounds like, um, I'm trying to think of a polite word for like a shit lib. He just, <laughs> just real banal. Like he says, mm -hmm. you know, well, the vigilante would be this smelly, isolated, uh, right wing lunatic. Aggrieved. Yeah. yeah. So he, he intended this. It's a real Archie Bunker situation, if you mm. get my reference. Sure, he intended yeah. a caricature of a right-wing American nut mm -hmm. who becomes, over the course of the book, a sympathetic figure. One, because we begin mm. to learn of his past, right. which shaped him. But then the other thing is he becomes a figure who does have a certain integrity. Mm -hmm. In the face of a corrupt who's world. consistent, yeah, who has a moral code um, that he's willing to die for, mm -hmm. and who he's the only one in that in that in this novel who uh, who who wants to figure out what's going on, yeah, who isn't um, implicated or bought off or scheming or or interested in power grabs, and he sees his friends getting murdered. And he wants to, he wants to um, combat that existential threat. Yeah, and he does it more proactively than anyone. Mm -hmm. And more often said that it's a failure of readers if they sympathize with Rorschach. But I think that's nonsense because one of the things that happens over the course of the book is when Rorschach comes on the scene on the very first page, mm -hmm. we have access to his journals, right? which is meant to read like a, the ravings of a serial killer or something. Mm -hmm. um, the epistolary novels. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but he, in the first page and in the, you know, the first chapter, he uses a lot of inflammatory 
rhetoric, sexist rhetoric, mm-hmm. right-wing rhetoric about the filth of yeah. the, the cities. The excesses of the progressives. Yeah. And that drops out as the book goes on. Mm-hmm. You can tell Moore is getting invested in this character and trying right. to show him in his best light. Uh, you know, you can see him taking on this kind mm-hmm. of protagonist quality. But don't, I think Rorschach maybe today may be more of a relevant character in um, in many people than we'd like to admit. Especially he, early, early, early scenes Rorschach. Yeah, like the incel yeah. type of, uh, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, formerly liberal people are who are looking at the excesses of a progressive culture oh, right. and saying no one will save them. I won't right. save them. Right. They're doomed to their own withering end. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> we have Rorschach can can satisfy those those highly privatized yearnings for mm-hmm. revenge and temperance. Right. And um moderation. Yeah. Well, and that's too, that's like a role of art. I mean, I think that one of the faults that pop culture criticism often has is that there's this assumption that heroes have to be morally exemplary, whereas I think often the function of characters in art is to name the otherwise unnameable, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. to, to sort of express the ambient emotions that are actually there. Well, there's three types of men in this world. Oh, boy. Tell me. There's good men. <laughs> there's bad men. And there's bad men who take out bad men. Bad men, okay. <laughs> Which are we, Sam? <laughs> we are, uh, we are, I'll speak for myself. Mm-hmm. I think I'm probably a good man. Okay, well, we're trying, I think. Yeah, we're I think trying. I'm probably a good man. <laughs> yeah. But I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind, I have fantasies of being a bad man who oh. takes out bad men. Oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I mostly... But I think, I'm, I think I'm damned <laughs> to be a good man. Okay. I think the people around me know that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit too much of a stay-at-home type, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're a good man. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no pretense. Fuck it. You're good men. <laughs> There is good, there is right, and there is wrong. Yeah, that's Rorschach's attitude. Um, but his means are a little different than than most. In the book, yeah. Because yeah. he's very violent. He's, he's vile. Yeah, yeah. He's violent. Yes. And, <laughs> and, but there's some redemptiveness to his basking in the filth. Right. In his unadulterated embrace of the of the wasteland and the underworld Mm -hmm. he's an agent within that yeah and he has no uh, pretense Mm -hmm. to be anything other than that and for that we can sympathize with him yes and he i mentioned dr manhattan as kind of the author insert character but um we're we're comfortable with spoilers here right sam we're not gonna play that game okay so the book opens with excerpts from his journal okay but at the end of the book he delivers his journal to the right-wing magazine that he subscribes right. to to publish to expose the plot he uncovers. Right. And in that way, that makes him as much the agent of the narrative as it makes Dr. Manhattan the perceiver of the narrative. So he's productive. Yeah. Authorially productive. Absolutely. Figure. Yeah. He pushes the narrative in seen and unseen ways. And marvelous things can happen if you just write stuff down. Yeah. Listeners. <laughs> Just write it down. You never know. You never know. <laughs> uh, 
But back to, just for a second, back to the morality of, of the superhero. Mm-hmm. This bunch, and it's revealed in Hollis Mason's writings, and what would you call them, these? Um, Memoirs? Yeah, the the interspersed, what mm-hmm. are they? Sort oh, of yeah, the, word? the like, I don't know, like the end papers of the chapters. Yeah, or... the, the formal term is, oh, more prose. Right. <laughs> That's a formal term. That is, I teach Watchmen a lot, and my students are always like, oh, Jesus, oh, I don't, you know. If I was I, on a run. Yeah, <laughs> if I wanted to read a book, I'd read a book. <laughs> but, so back to the morality of these this crew, who watches the Watchmen, you know, that's yeah. the refrain, who watches, who watches the Watchmen. But they're t- Hollis Mason, these aren't perfect people. No. And Hollis Mason knows that. And they're celebrities in the press, and they're covered like, like, um, um, well, how are these celebrities covered? Like, um, out of control or scandalous, or they're, yeah. they're covered in this pop way. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in that symbolic terrain for the, the American, the consumption by the American public. But then he writes in his memoir, and I want to hear your take on this. Because we just talked about Rorschach, but then maybe we talk about the comedian and whoever else is implicated in this from Hollis Mason. And Mason writes, and this is when they were in the Minutemen in the 30s, mm-hmm. so when it was more okay to be a fascist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and he says, yet some of us were politically extreme. Before Pearl Harbor, I heard Hooded Justice openly expressing approval for the activities of Hitler's Third Reich, and Captain Metropolis had has gone on record as making statements about black and Hispanic Americans that have been viewed as both racially prejudiced and inflammatory, charges that it is difficult to argue or deny. Yet I dare say, oh, sorry, yes, I dare say some of us did have our sexual hang-ups. Everybody knows what eventually became of the silhouette, and although it would be tasteless to rehash the events surrounding her death in this current volume, I think she was a lesbian who got killed right yeah for her sexuality Mm -hmm. it provides proof for those who need it that for some people dressing up dressing up in a costume did have its more libidinous elements okay Mm. and then just real quick yes yes some of us were unstable and neurotic only a week ago as of writing this i received word that the man behind the mask and wings of mothman whose true identity i am not at liberty liberty to divulge has been committed to a mental institution after a long bout of alcoholism and a complete mental breakdown. Yes, we were crazy. We were kinky. We were Nazis. All those things that people say. We were also doing something because we believed in it. We were attempting, through our personal efforts, to make our country safer and a better place to live in. Individually, working on our separate patches of turf, we did too much good in our respective communities to be written off as a mere aberration, whether social or sexual or psychological. John, your response. So that's very interesting because in a way, it's Alan Moore's view and the critique of Alan Moore's view. So Alan Moore is coming out of this mid-century left-wing analysis that you see in, well, and for instance, your beloved Thomas Pinchot, I think this is in Gravity's Rainbow, that fascism and sexual fetishism, sexual paraphilias, go together, that fascism is this kind of enactment of a repressive sexuality that can't come out in any other way. Um, and that's why in, in a book like Gravity's Rainbow, you have all the, the portrayals of coprophagia and, and pedophilia and whatnot. Um, and this can go in homophobic directions too, and I think it does to a point in Watchmen. So this idea that fascism is the political expression of an unhealthy 
non-productive form of sexuality uh you know this uh you know leather gear instead of instead of simple nudity alan moore's a bit of a hippie um and yet so this is an established critique coming from left-wing aesthetics and politics yeah this was the marxist freudianism of the mid-century okay you see it in adorno you see it in susan sontag you see it in wilhelm reich um this idea of fascism and sexual uh sexual perversion mm-hmm. it's very conservative by today's standards it's really the opposite of the way we tend to think of it um because we think of fascism as simply sexually repressive but they thought of it as perverse and so more i think has that attitude but then the thing mason says at the end of the passage we did too much good to be written off is the the critique of Moore's critique which is that you know, maybe the the amoralist or immoralist critique of Moore's critique, which is that you think you can have uh, something being done in this world that doesn't involve perversion, that doesn't involve oddity, extremism, extremism, weird characters, people who how did you put it? Go all the way, go hard. Well, <laughs> people who go. Well, hard. I don't want to. I don't want to drop this. <laughs> too early. It's too early. It's <laughs> right. the his hammer I have in the in the kit to 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 level the blow of the reception of Watchmen, but this, <laughs> this, this damn novel, I mean, part, part of what this novel is about is about people who go super hard. Yeah. People who go all out. Mm-hmm. Extreme people. Yeah. Extreme people. And the compulsions, no, no one of these superheroes, yeah, you know, the one who didn't go all out, Hollis Mason got fucked up by a bunch of hooligans. Yeah. So you see, there's, so there's <laughs> some, some com- compulsory drive that motivates these characters that they don't ever quite explain. They don't right. ever quite explain their motivations. No, it's not fully reduced. It, it no. threatens to be reduced to that trauma plot, yeah. you know, the, in Rorschach's character, but it never is fully. No. There's something in excess about all these In every figures. character, yeah. in, every, in every hero, um, there's something driving them that is extraordinary, mm-hmm. that it doesn't fit in with law, common law, so it must create its own conditions for enforcement of a type of inexplicable individualized law, their own law, taking law into their own hands. And like Hollis Mason says, whether it was political or sexual or social or psychological, these people, the only way they know how to deal, other than Dr. Manhattan, who was thrust into it um, out of his control, but these... these um, um, these other non non omnipotent superheroes, they don't know any other way than to go all out and put themselves into extreme situations. Yeah. And isn't there something sympathetic about that? Not necessarily in the physical sense, not necessarily in the expression of violence, but as an artist, isn't yeah. there something instructive about how these people live their lives in and maybe the critiques they hear of pervert or fascist or extremist or um or aberrant or whatever maybe that's what you will encounter as an artist if you if you put on your your mask and your costume and you start spilling color all over the city can't you just tell me how this all ends and save us the trouble it ends with you in tears what do you seem to understand Locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. 
vengeance-fueled vigilante. Vigilante. You get to be the freaks that you want to be. You get to be the freaks that you want to be without yes. anyone really knowing who you are. And you continuously refuse to see things from my perspective. Well, you could put, say, cameras on every street corner. That's a pretty fascist touch. Some sort of instruction <laughs> right. about that. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, it's an ironic, to the extent that Alan Moore means the simplistic left-wing critique, it's a strange thing coming from a guy who, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of Alan Moore. He has right. hair down to here. He's got a beard like this. He wears, I mean, after this book comes out, he starts worshiping a snake and walks with a snake-headed walking cane and has occult rings on every finger and is in a menage a trois. And is writing obsessive, you know, intricate clockwork books mm-hmm. instead of keeping his job while his wife so, is pregnant. So I mean, this, this is an extreme, extreme personality yeah. himself right. is writing this book. Right. And and do they, and the question, do they know, does the comedian know anything besides that? Does Rorschach know, does Sally Jupiter know anything besides that? Yeah. Like, can they be normal? Yeah, Night Owl's anyway. passage on the, on the only time he felt tuned in was 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 sharing an experience of like the predatory energy of a of a of an owl. Yes. It's very Lynchian. Uh, <laughs> the owls are not what they seem in in Watchmen. But these people they can't they can't live unless they're placed in the imaginative and very real schemes of this these extreme compulsions. Right. And if it results in more justice and law enforcement and in the continuation of the American experiment, then all better for it. Right. But I think there's a <laughs> those are those are byproducts of right. of an internal psychological drive. A work of ruthless psychological realism. It's a landmark in the graphic novel medium, ruthless psychological realism. Mm-hmm. People know this about this novel. I mean, people, this is how it affects people. I think so. Yeah. God damn. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I first read. It. I was twelve years old when I first read it, which maybe is a little young. Um, I I read it on a bus. My mother and I were going on a vacation. We took a Greyhound bus to Toronto to see the Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know the Phantom of the Opera? Sure. Christine. Um, and, <laughs> and I needed reading material for the you know eight-hour trip to, to Toronto. Excellent. So that's what I took. And it so you really, got scorched. Yeah, I did. I wasn't... I mean, it had a reputation in the comics world as something unusually good, mm-hmm. but I had never read anything like, like that. Um, well, t- tell, me mo- tell me about your views the comedian. Okay. Um, now, I think the comedian, what interests me about him is the way I normally read this book. Mm-hmm. And I've never encountered someone who liked yeah. the comedian, so I'm, it's going to be interesting. The way I read this book is he takes all the flack for Rorschach. Mm-hmm. It's like they're one personality that got split. 
Yeah. So he never gets a mitigating backstory the way Rorschach does. We yeah. never learn about his traumatic childhood. We never learn about his whatever. He has no code. He's pure animal. He's a mercenary. I don't know. The main thing we see him do is commit rape, um, which Rorschach never does and wouldn't do. Um, he sells his his martial prowess to the government. He doesn't like serve his country selflessly. Um, so he's the pure evil American character, the pure uh, mm-hmm. nihilistic, the what's the D.H. Lawrence line? The American is a stoic, isolate killer. Mm-hmm. Like that's him. He's, he's a shark. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rorschach is the more redemptive form of that figure that has a code. So he's the he's the um, representative um, uh, figure of of the apex of, of of American imperial power. Yeah, and the underside below all the moralizing, good versus evil. Yeah, he's the true. He's the guy at Milai massacring yeah. the civilians. Yeah. But what about what about what about that? That, what about that? Maybe things are not even as simple as that. Okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's the unenviable position of having to defend the the comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's how ideologues felt in t- defending the 2003 invasion of Iraq. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So would the defense of the comedian be... This wouldn't cover the crimes of his private life, but it mm-hmm. would cover the crimes of his public life. Would the defense be, um, well, you know the movie A Few Good Men, right? The, sure, yeah. The You need someone on that wall that yeah. will do things you would never do right. in, in civilized like life. Like he does that so that 40 years later, millions of American youths can safely voice their opposition to that, which he did, but yes. could, <laughs> could, not, could not have done. Precisely, um, yeah. And... If only pe- if people really looked into the depths of the comedian, maybe they'd see the price, a certain price, mm-hmm. and a certain unwillingness of the masses to to be the the collector on that price. Right. Something along those lines. Yeah. And ruthless then, realism. Sure. And yeah. and that's that has its own treachery, like pers- moral treachery is pursuing that line too far. I would say that he he's the father of Laurie. Right. He is the only procreative figure in that. Him and Sally are the only procreative figure in that. That is true. Um, it's an utterly childless book mm-hmm. aside from them. And Laurie is a – and there is there is a sadness in the in the confrontation scene or how he holds her, her face and yes. wants to see himself in what is the next generation or what is the future. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that's to- – that's the reader – is led to believe that that's a, a complete lustful, violent uh, interaction with yeah, Lori. Yeah, incestuous almost. In, yeah, yeah, but I don't think it's that. Mm-hmm. I don't see... Um, and something there is something about that, about the procreation of Lori, which is embedded in this act of rape, mm-hmm. which is unforgivable in mm-hmm. a certain sense. But it is forgiven by Sally. It is in, forgiven in the, in the book. Yeah. yeah, my students don't like that, but, um, but <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah, uh, but um, and 
those dynamics coupled with there is some sort of reading in favor of because these people are in defense of the United States, the continuation of an American created world. Mm-hmm. There is something about that. What did you call it? Pragmatic brutalism or pragmatic brutality? Yeah, yeah. There is something about how that, in the end, is what gives gives birth to the security and the sanctity of 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 continuation of next generation of Americans. So I read Watchmen, John, um, during this these rising nuclear tensions between the United States and Russia, between NATO powers, and it was eerily relevant. And the experience of the text was laced with the uncertainty that the world has experienced right now around nuclear war, and. What do you what do you think about how this text depicts nuclear anxiety, and how that's uh, discernible in the in the current moment? Yeah, I think it's interesting. It reminds me a little of some of the other prose novels that you might compare to, like Pinchon's Gravity's Rainbow or Delillo's Underworld, that seem to suggest that this truly new phenomenon in human history. So you know, I, I think maybe. A lot of phenomena are not new in human history, even when they seem new. But I think one that is totally unique to the 20th century was the prospect of a purely secular, human-made end to the world. Right. Um, And the way that that changes human subjectivity is responsible. I think all three of those books suggest that it's responsible for a kind of nihilism that interfuses everyday life, that this sense, the pervasive sense in Watchmen, life is meaningless, it has no intrinsic meaning, it has no intrinsic worth, comes from this sense that it could be, again, in a purely non-religious, non... Because a religious apocalypse grants significance to human life, but mm. but this meaningless war, uh, even if the war has a meaning, the fact that it ends in the extermination of both parties renders it meaningless. And Armageddon this, without salvation. Armageddon without salvation. And this makes life meaningless. There's a remarkable page of Watchmen um, where two, the two detectives who go throughout the book uh, who start investigating the comedian's death at the beginning of the book, and we sort of follow them through their adventures throughout the the middle of the text, there's a scene where they are investigating a murder of uh, a father has has murdered his two children. And we just see the sort of bloody interior of this crime scene. And I think it's suggested in the text that it's it's this nuclear despair, this nuclear annihilation Mm -hmm. that has inspired driven them. Has driven this madness throughout uh throughout the world. Mm. Um so uh yeah, here I found the page. Um he says the media one of the detectives says the media inspires boredom, not waking up one morning and butchering your kids. That takes something else, man. That takes a whole different kind of inspiration. And Mm. this is after um, in the counterfactual history of the book, after Dr. Manhattan is exiled, the Cold War resumes, the Russians invade Afghanistan, 
um, years late in, in the history of the book. And nuclear Armageddon is, is, is a prospect, and this in, inspires this butchery, this despair. Mm. And when I first read it in the 90s, that had almost entirely vanished. Okay. Um, there was a sense that that nuclear prospect of annihilation, I mean, we heard about nuclear proliferation and um, the prospect of bombs going rogue and terrorists using them. And then there was 9-11. But there was not this sense of, strangely, we ended up in the world of Watchmen. It was a unipolar world because the United States had so decisively won the Cold War that there was no more sort of adversary to imagine that we would have a nuclear exchange with in the same way. Right. And so for the return of bipolarity or multipolarity this year and the return of the nuclear anxiety, um, it does make the book more timely and more relevant again. And I wonder if we'll start seeing signs in our society of this, of this nihilistic despair. One thing we haven't talked about is the ominous presence of, Russian Soviet threat in the in Watchmen. Yes, and for me, I read it this week, and it coincided perfectly. is is hardly the appropriate modifier, but it coincided in with with a uh, with a um, sort of vital, horrible relevancy. My reading, as you see the headlines. Of uh, Soviets invade Afghanistan. Soviets push the Pakistan border. Soviet tanks on the loose. Yeah. Um, what in the universe of the Watchmen and in the universe we're in now? How do you? How is? How is this Russian threat rendered? It's another interesting paradox of Moore's politics is that he would have been involved in the peace movement. You know, at the time, uh, the nuclear disarmament movement. I think that was his. Those were his politics, which I don't want to overbearingly characterize people, but the neoconservatives of the time and later would say that that was in some objective or formal sense almost Soviet sympathetic. Um, And yet the way he represents the Soviets in the book is pure Cold War paranoia. The minute you relax your grip on them they're going to roll all across all sorts of territory in an uncontrolled way and and that does resonate with you know what you're seeing today in the sense that you do have an expansionist russia now how far they're going to be able to go there are some people saying well they're not going to stop at ukraine they're going to go on Mm -hmm. and i i do think this can lapse into paranoia you know they're going to end up in you know uh, end up crossing the english channel or something i don't think that's very realistic um but this this question of the russian threat as this expansionist threat and more despite what you would think would be his politics which would want to promote a coexistence with the soviet union some kind of detente um, that does occur at the end of the book you would think that he would not represent them as this imperial menace but in fact he does and i think mm-hmm. that that uh, resonates with how they're being represented for for both obvious reasons and, and maybe less justified reasons today. Well, what's interesting is the type of ground war we're seeing in Europe now what was once thought to be impo- rendered impossible by nuclear capability. Mm-hmm. 
But we see the Russians using the threat of nuclear war as one component of a hybrid warfare as a way to intimidate and to balk and to dissemble at the negotiating table and and, and um, try to demoralize opponents or the resolve of opponents. And what other nation does that other than maybe North Korea or perhaps Pakistan? You don't, you don't think that's at least implicit in America's posture? I think America's posture is, is that we have the capability, but we're stewards of this post-nuclear world. <laughs> and the rationality of our policies are designed to make sure it never happens. The open threat of nuclear deployment is reserved for rogue states. Well, what's the what's the moral difference between the open threat and the implied threat? The implied threat is structural and tempered and controlled by complex theories and qualified people. The the explicit threat is you thrust that destructive capability into a kinetic war in a world in a war of contingency and you might use it as leverage, but you begin to lose the reins of rationality. So, um, so you're saying once you introduce it officially into your overt military calculation you've crossed some boundary absolutely you've made it more thinkable you've made it more thinkable what about the perspective that i mean why are we the stewards of the nuclear world because we developed the most technology and because and we and we deployed it and we deployed it right and we and which is i understand that um and we we built treaties and doctrines and we survived confrontations and we have the most prudence and and responsibility and capability of any other nation and we have the most to we have the most to lose as far as Leadership, right? That I understand. It's our responsibility yes. to enforce non-proliferation agreements and treaties so that it doesn't get out of hand. And I mean, if this sounds ridiculous, but if the nukes ever did start flying, that would be the end of American power, the end of American dominance. Yeah. Um, and so, in that sense, we do have an interest in making sure it doesn't come to that. Right. And. There's an open question on how those threats are being used by the Kremlin or what what's their strategy, but they've they've done it before. I mean, they've done it in recent history. So it's a sign of weakness and it's a sign of being a rogue government and I think it it shows you I don't know, perhaps 
the irrationality of Russian aggression, which will largely be punishable and felt by its people. Isn't it interesting, though, about Watchmen, the way that it represents the U.S. in just that light, as you were saying earlier about Dr. Manhattan being one face and the comedian the other? Mm-hmm. So there is the there's a rational, irrational mm-hmm. um, kind of divergence or, or synergy, if we want to use that word, in the American empire as well. Yeah, and maybe that's, maybe those are key components of an imperial might. Mm-hmm. Some elements of either. Yes. Um, I guess I'm asking you. <laughs> we're back to crossfire. Yeah. Um, are you are you in a place where because I don't think I am, where it it it, it there there is a kind of incommensurate. You you wouldn't ever want to compare the U.S. to Russia in its present state. That would be an illegitimate comparison for you. That would be a a whataboutism. Well, we've never been that weak within the last hundred years of history. That's probably and true. Yeah. They've been they've been consigned to weakness mm-hmm. and and sort of a brutal, unthinking might, which gives the world, which makes the world no more prosperous, which makes the world no more. Um, connected. Um, I don't think that as a state, I don't think they've earned their right to to conquer territories. Okay. I think if you're a petrol state with outside military spending and you enslave your your native genius into to becoming cyber warriors, um, I don't think. People want what you have, other than by intimidation. Mm-hmm. So there's no none of the soft power advantage. No. What do people want from mm-hmm. the Soviets? What do people want well, from so- Russians, other than the? the ob- they, they did want things from the Soviets. That's different. They wanted food, and they couldn't get any. <laughs> right, but I, I, I am saying that the Soviet Union. Whether you, you you like it or not, I fear I fear we're polarizing into exaggerated visions of certain positions. But the Soviet Union stood for an ideal, a universal ideal. I think of Nadine Gordimer, the South African novelist who was a leftist, and she said, and and this is whatever, this is sentimental, whatever. But she said, when I was young, it was the red flag that summoned us to bread and justice, and. You know, that's whatever, that's whatever, but that's how people felt. Now, I don't know, I don't think Russia now, beyond some reactionary mysticism, has has the same soft power, but I think we've squandered some ourselves. I think there's been a decay in our popular culture. I agree. But I think there's a truthfulness in our in our system and a, a pragmatic validation of its results mm-hmm. that most of the free world hungers for will pay tribute to, still respects, and any idea that that system won't be ma- maintained is erroneous. Mm-hmm. That system will be maintained for most of the free world, whether it's in our form or it's within partnership with with China, it will be maintained, Okay, I, I believe. 
Okay. Um, I don't <laughs> think that a, a type of ethnic nationalism, um, a type of uh, conservative Christianity, a type of an archaic, built on archaic industry, like oil, Mm-hmm. or industry that is moving into obsolescence. I understand why the American right sees powerful corollaries and potentials for allyship with the Russian nation. I I understand those connections, but most of the world doesn't want anything to do with that. Um, I mean, it's definitely something that has... They they've abandoned the idea that they represent a universal. They specifically. It was never about communism. Yeah. It was always about being Russian. Right, I think that's probably true. I think you even see that in in some of what Stalin. Said. Like imagine imagine a, a young child in 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 former Soviet Bulgaria Bulgarian territory or mm-hmm. Ukrainian territory, and they're starving, mm-hmm. and they have no food. Mm-hmm. Because all their land has been controlled by centralized power, mm-hmm. and markets have dried up, and whatever, mm-hmm. and they're malnourished, and millions of their countrymen have have been starved out. Mm-hmm. Um, lineage is gone, but they're trying to survive, and there's this thing called communism that's supposed to be working, um, and it's not. And then suddenly. You know, maybe you begin to hear there's a, they get a radio from some unknown source, and maybe you begin to hear tune into airwaves and the English tongue. You begin to hear the English tongue, mm-hmm. and but it's a subversive, hidden mm-hmm. mechanism in the household. But then maybe there's a shipment, a shipment of of food objects into mm-hmm. the house, and and you and you get and the child begins to smell it and. And they get a cup of, of condensed milk, uh-huh. and they t- and they're maybe they're four or five years old, and they've been malnourished most of their life. Mm-hmm. And they take and they take a cup of condensed milk, and they draw it to their lips, and they and their genetics change, mm-hmm. and they're and, and they're turned towards whether they know it or not, biologically, ideologically, historically, they're turned towards an orientation, an orientation of prosperity, and then their mother is cooking spam. What is this spam? And she fries spam, or, uh-huh. and the child takes puts spam to their lips for the first time. Uh huh. And how can you, like that's to me that's the history of the twentieth century. Okay, but what if I told you a story about? I won't do the whole story, but a, 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 little, a little Bulgarian child. No, a little Argentinian child. Yeah. You know whose uh, whose father was disappeared by General Pinochet, who was upheld by the. Chicago economists and the CIA, and uh, and and her vision of of what a livable life would be comes in the form of the uh, the leftist underground. You know what I mean? Aren't there aren't there plenty of imperial crimes that undercut the overt ideals of whatever the empires profess to go around? I think there are plenty of imperial crimes, and I think. Do you want me to? be totally honest yeah i think if you take the ledger mm-hmm. and there probably is a ledger mm-hmm. that you could find and you count up the crimes and you count up the benefits and developments on one side and then you go to the other side and you count up the crimes mm-hmm. including including in china mm-hmm. and in indochina and you count up the crimes 
and you do the benefits and and developments and you and you do a ledger and you come out with a value on both sides mm-hmm. there's i don't see a way in which the value of western democratic liberal capitalism is is superseded by anything that was achieved in the soviet union okay i think that's I'm agnostic. I think that's probably true to a point. I, I mean, I guess the way I would put it is I, I think the, the values of, of the West insofar as they were more democratic, representative, allowed for independent civil society were superior, at least on that level. Um, I, I don't know how to tally the benefits versus the, the, uh, the demerits of different empires as far as lifting people out of prosperity versus plunging them into it or or maybe i think of it more abstractly as just the legacy of the enlightenment and it was implemented in different ways in different places and it always had this quality of being able to improve people's lives improve productivity redistribute goods but it also had this crushing rationality that you know leads to surveillance states and oppression yeah and so the enlight the mixed record of the the culture and the barbarism of the enlightenment uh, the dialectic of the enlightenment is how i think of it but do you think do you do you think that so i'm setting up we're setting up a a binary Mm -hmm. but today do you think it's it's possible to complicate that binary or we're in a moment of complication so that regardless of histories, regardless of failures and successes, we're in a moment now, an interconnected moment, where elements of a certain type of Russian nationalism or humanism or Russian as subject or mm-hmm. cultural uh, Russian culture or things that, that um, come out of that, that nation and those people, do you think those are, can be possibly, and I'm speaking... Like, in the in the shoes of a maybe an, an American conservative, like an American nationalist conservative. Mm-hmm. So you see some of those things, and you see some of our, you look towards our own imperial crimes mm-hmm. and wasted soldiers in Middle East wars, which had no purpose. And and you you do that ledger, and you and all it leads to is outrage and disillusionment. And you see these other cultures developing, which seem more of a of a home perhaps than the America you knew mm-hmm. or the America you're told is there but it doesn't seem to be there. Do you think it's possible today for those movements, do you think it's responsible to begin to to intermingle with that Russian ideology and try to form something new along with its along with its American allegiances? However applicable they are today do you think that's responsible do you think it's possible um no i don't think it's possible because Because of the binary because i i know that a certain kind of right winger hates this and i think even a certain kind of left winger hates this but america is is just that the idea it's just the constitution it's just that civil religion it's just that flag and what it stands for it has no ethnic content and it is its own religion it, it isn't dependent upon christianity and i think if you get rid of that everything goes you no longer will even be able to sustain a, this this as a state 
Um, and so I don't think it's possible unless they're actually planning for the disarticulation of the state. And some of them are. Some of them believe in a new civil war and things like that. Um, so no, whatever whatever conservatives want to do that's that's short of working within that framework either isn't going to work or it's going to work in a way that nobody's going to want to live in. Right, and I see the reflex against that so powerful that um, even getting, even surviving that would be a question. Yeah. It's a, it's a cultural yeah. reflex. And I'm as big a critic of some of the excesses of today's left and identity politics as anybody, but there are resources to criticize that within the American liberal tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's not just a natural extension of the American liberal tradition by any means. Do you think there are resources to criticize the nationalists? Yeah. I think the the just the idea of um, America as as cosmopolitan, sort of spiritually cosmopolitan, as you find in the transcendentalists and um, you know the the Enlightenment founding, which deliberately minimized a sense of Christianity in particular. I mean, they spoke of nature's God, but that that's so broad that could mean almost anything. Um, so yeah. I do. I, I think the nationalists are importing a an ideology from places where maybe it feels more natural because there's a settlement of longer standing, hmm. but it's not going to work here. American love. No, and I think that it's interesting that um, when you read more works by more, uh, you see that there's always the surface left-wing critique, but there's never anything more than the superficial and all the imaginative energy of the book goes toward these right-wing right. figures that are the most generative forces right. in their in their world. Yeah. Um so uh so that's kind of a trope with him. Yeah. And cuz there's never there's no positive left-wing vision in this book or unless it's uh, unless it's Vite, we will have to talk about in yeah. a minute, but there's no vision of a world in which this exploitation doesn't need to happen to to stabilize the Correct. the intricate structure. Well, what and we can talk about Vite and maybe you can clue people in on your assessment of Vite cuz no you've been thinking about Vite for a lot of years mm -hmm. as a reader of Watchmen. Does he grow more or less sinister as the years go by? Well, he grows to me more, I think. Um, because one of the... I mean, one thing about him is that his characterization is kind of a flaw in the book. So the book has a mystery structure where you begin with a murder and you, the book sort of is structured according to trying to solve this murder. And... Clearly, he's the only character that never gets discussed until the penultimate chapter. So, and then his story is told right as you find out he's the murderer. I mean, it's it's kind of not it's not that compelling as a structure. It's a little bit flawed because he's obviously being withheld to be the killer, which tells you he's going to be mm -hmm. the killer. Um, but it transpires that he has this scheme that he has. He is going to um, frighten the world into nuclear disarmament sacrificially sacrificially by beaming a psychic monster into new york city killing half the city and pretending it's an alien invasion so that russia and the u.s will have to unite against the external threat rather than fighting amongst themselves 
Um, you know, the right, the, the current MAGA nationalist version of that is, <laughs> is where we, we were united with Russia, but that alien form was the Chinese. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Flawed in either yeah. case. Um, so, uh, so that's his scheme. But what the reason I've been thinking about him for a long time is because his background is so strange. So this is a blonde, sort of blue-eyed character, and he's represented almost as this like Nazi-like Aryan ideal. But he's represented in the book as the spokesperson for the political left. Uh, there's a marvelous parody of a liberal like lifestyle magazine where he's interviewed. Right. Uh, it's really funny. Um, and he progress <laughs> yeah um named nova express after a novel of uh Burroughs's, uh the name of the magazine and the book very elusive it's text. very elusive text yeah and that's why we like it <laughs> yes um <laughs> but when his backstory were told he came to america in 1939 which suggests to me is he and the name veit was the name of an actor in german expressionist cinema so mm-hmm. that who had to flee Germany in the 30s because his wife was Jewish, Conrad mm-hmm. Veidt. And so is Veidt, is this blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy, but he's a refugee from Hitler's Germany? Is he Jewish? Is he Nazi? There's this strange ambiguity about him. Mm-hmm. Is he right or is he left? And I guess I read that as Alan Moore's final twist of the knife into the superhero archetype, which is there's a... Um, there's been like this ethnic studies reading of superheroes as reflective of the immigrant experience of those who created them, who said that they are assimilationist fantasies on the part of these Jewish men who created them because they were stigmatized with the tropes of anti-Semitism, that they were weak, bookish, nebbish. Mm -hmm. So they created these masculine, robust Mm -hmm. ideals that are very similar to the Nazi image of the strong man. They co-opted. Yeah. They they seized. Well, I think the way this gets read is they succumbed. They oh, it didn't have enough of a critical edge. They they become their own kind of fascists, Um, and so I think maybe Alan Moore's don't tell the progressive caucus that one, (laughs) right? (laughs) So I think there's a way in which Alan Moore is playing with that ambiguity. And then the other thing about Veidt is he represents science. He represents you know trust science, believe the experts, um, because he's the utilitarian who has this... The means and the methods. The means, the methods. The, he did, you know, he's always represented with in front of charts and graphs. And, yeah, and TVs. And he's a corporate leader. So he's this incipient neoliberal technocrat. Perfect. Yeah. So very he, presc- prescient. It is a very prescient book. It, it's, when I first read it in the 90s, I, and I think in the 90s and early 2000s, it was like, oh, well, this... It's a great book, but the time has passed. But now, you know, we're back in conflict with Russia. This kind Perfect of timing. figure has come back up. Perfect uh, timing. Yeah, it's, it's a book that goes on being relevant. You know, I, was, I stayed up late last night reading it, and mm-hmm. I got the, um, I don't know, there's not a word for it, but it's that particular type of heebie-jeebies when your aesthetic experience is correlating with world events. Yeah, mm-hmm. Especially That's why there was such good art made in the 20s and the 30s. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, no, it's true. That's an um, argument for war. Better art. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I think artists do have these, uh, you know, uh, pound, speaking of fascist pound, said artists are the antennae of the race. 
you know, they sense these tremblings in the... I think I, think, I hope he meant the human race. Uh, <laughs> they sense these tremblings in the ether. Yeah. So would you rather live in a world... and Well, would you rather live in a world built by Adrian Veidt and Dr. Manhattan, or would you rather live in a world that's guarded by Rorschach and the comedian? That's a tough question because you kind of have to side with your your enemies on both scenarios. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a. T- let, let me say this: <laughs> it's not a tough question because of my answer is quite ready, which is I would rather live in the the comedian Rorschach world because the danger of the Vite Doctor Manhattan world is that they will exert much more top-down control on you. Well, and also that you can't be extreme in that world. Well, that's true, too. It doesn't allow individuality. Mm -hmm. They've mapped it all out. I mean, that's the thing. Dr. Manhattan is the mind of the book. The book is a grid. And the book itself sort of grids off this extremism. The book is a fight between extremism and structure. Wow. And then that's represented in the vagina dentata. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so, in the, I believe it's pronounced vagina dentata. Is it? <laughs> in my house, it is. Vagina, vagina. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I got a story about a vagina dentata, but go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Does everyone know what it is? The toothed vagina. It's like a classical archetype that you see throughout. It's world. classical. I well, thought I it was just surrealist. Well, I think it goes back, I mean, my source is Camille Paglia, but I think she talks about it being present in the art of a lot of different ancient cultures. Um, Gosh. So the image of the toothed vagina, the, the monstrous feminine. Yeah, the treachery of the, of the feminine. Yeah, you get that even in, in, in more you know, later writers like Milton or Spencer, you know, describing, you know, um, women who are beautiful women from the waist up and then monsters down below and yeah. things like that. So the devouring. The feminine. castrating. Yeah, castrating. So the vagina dentata, the vagina dentata. <laughs> In this house, we say vagina dentata. Uh, <laughs> In this house, we respect the comedian. Uh, <laughs> Um, oh, it's all a joke, John. <laughs> so it shows up in the the alien that Vite sends to destroy New York when you see that alien. And there's preliminary sketches somewhere in well, Fiji. Yeah, you see the preliminary sketches, and then you see its face. Nice and it sketch. has this vagina dentata mm-hmm. image. But that image, so another thing about Watchmen, if you haven't read it, is that there are visual motifs that repeat over and over again throughout the book. Well, I'm so dumb, I didn't catch any of those. It's hard to catch on a first reading. Um, but, <laughs> but for instance, the smiley face with the blood stain is one. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, the image of the Hiroshima lovers, the shadows mm-hmm. embracing. Yep, yep. Um, and I would say the, the Vagina Dentata, I've literally never said it this way in my life. The vagina. You like it though, right? It's a little <laughs> yeah, better. It, I guess. It's a little more shrouded. Yeah, I guess. It doesn't, it doesn't say You can word. say it and people don't, it doesn't click as <laughs> right. quickly as. Right. Anyway, <laughs> um, you do see this image throughout the book too, because there's a, 
there's all these scenes on the street of the everyday lives of New Yorkers, mm-hmm. and one of them is a butch lesbian cab driver, and she's Joey. Joey, and her. It's very interesting. She's in a relationship with, and this is another thing where it's very prescient. She's a working class, marginalized person, so she doesn't have all the politically correct attitudes, and she's in a relationship with a young woman who works in an office and who's countercultural and always mm-hmm. correcting her speech and saying mm-hmm. these therapeutic things to her. So, so it's an intersectionality combustion. Yeah, exactly, and I, I think that's very funny. Um, intersectionality and, is beautiful when it works. Yeah, but it's even more beautiful when it doesn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, my view. <laughs> I think intersectionality, um, like Western civilization, would be a good idea. But most of the people who promote it don't actually do. But anyway, her Joey, the cab driver, her girlfriend, who's the the social justice warrior, yuppie, um, is who's all into activism, gives her a poster to hang up that's gay women against rape. And it shows the feminine symbol with teeth. Wow. And then in the inset pirate comic book, you have the mouth of the shark that almost devours the mm-hmm. the central figure. Okay. And so I think for Alan Moore, and I, I don't claim this is conscious. I think it's unconscious. I think we have to do a kind of a psychoanalytic reading. He, he, there's part of him that wants to be Dr. Manhattan, that wants to control this grid because the extreme to him is this erupting body, this erupting right. female sexuality. Okay. And I think the book is a contest between these two forces of order and chaos, male order, female okay. chaos. And that can be drawn out in the relationship between Laurie and, and Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so. Well, now that you draw that out, <laughs> Alan Moore, I don't know. <laughs> Seems a little sexist. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, this book, um, all his books, actually, up to, like I said, I have not finished the last, the thousand-page novel, but in many of his books, there's this conflict. The main book he did in the 90s is called From Hell, and it's about Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. And in that book, <clears throat> the Dr. Manhattan figure is the royal surgeon who is Jack the Ripper. Okay. And he is an occult initiate. And he learns to perceive time the way Dr. Manhattan does. And basically, how does he use this gift? He goes around London carving the bodies of women, the unruly bodies of women, to sort of suppress this natural force in the name of this patriarchal masculinity. Now, Moore, by the time he writes From Hell, Moore's now fully conscious of this. So From Hell handles that theme more self-aware, more humanely. Sure. I mean, I want to mention real quick Dan Dryberg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the novel's figure of impotence. <laughs> well, impotence that doesn't give up. Right. And that's the most important thing, folks. Yeah. <laughs> we should transform this into a uh, male advice show, uh, like <laughs> Jordan Peterson. Or... Right. <laughs> Right, I think I stole that good men, bad men, and bad men who take out bad men from Jordan Peterson. You did? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think the male uh, rationality and female chaos is Jordan Peterson, too. Yeah. This is, a J- this is a JP homage hour. Yes. I've never read a word of Jordan Peterson, by the way. I've, I've seen him on YouTube, though. We've all seen him on YouTube. Yeah. 
So Dan drives so Dan Driver. Right. You know, when Jordan Peterson gets on a roll, he can be quite persuasive. Yeah, so I mean, I listened mm. to some of his biblical lectures. They were interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what everyone says. They said, I just listened to the biblical lectures. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't get out my transgender resentment. Right, right. I don't, I don't thrust that to, I don't delegate that to JP. I just, <laughs> just strictly Bible studies. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what about Dan Dryberg? I mean, come on, man. He First thing out of your mouth is he's impotent. Well, that's the most memorable scene he's in. Is his his but he pulls it scene. off. He, he pulls it he off. He does. Yeah, he can't do it until he's in the costume. And you know? he's a true fetish. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He's a pervert. Um, and he's a scientifically adept pervert. Mm-hmm. Practical, mild mannered. Yeah. But a pervert. Sometimes those personality types make the most outstanding perverts. And it, he's he like Laurie. He's kind. He's he's a he genuinely kind. kind person, which yeah. a lot of the other characters aren't. And he's his competition with Laurie. I mean, Doctor Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's that would intimidate any right subsequent partner because he's omnipotent. Well, he's omnipotent, and he's he can he can change his size. Yes. Yeah. At will. Right. Though there is that scene where Laurie resents the fact that he duplicates himself when they're making love. Right. And he and she thinks it's kind of creepy. Yes. So maybe there's a, a word put in there for, for the merely human, the human-sized. Right. Absolutely. And I think Laurie, once again, acts as a... I'm sorry. As a stabilizing... I just hit the microphone. Sorry. <laughs> Your right hand acts as a destabilizing... <laughs> yes instrument of audio disruption <laughs> <laughs> so that was an illuminating discussion on dan driver <laughs> yes <laughs> do we have anything i mean anything well i think the she, owls are not what they seem i think he and laurie are the reader surrogate if dr manhattan nice. is a kind of writer surrogate he he and laurie are the reader surrogate because nice. they're the closest thing to human beings yes normal Everyday people with normal struggles, desires. uncertainty. Yeah. I remember Manhattan getting getting uh, uh, Jimmy wigged by those fucking protons that that uh, that White put out towards the conclusion, and, he's, and he he was in a moment of static uncertainty. He says, "I forgot how much I enjoy uncertainty." Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There are characters who have no choice but to to enjoy the uncertainty of their right. lives, and they're skilled and they're talented, mm-hmm. and they ooh. Nice panel. What is it? Describe it. Well, the owls are not what they seem. So, <laughs> is that from Twin Peaks? I, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm bad on Twin Peaks. And I'm making this, I'm driving this illusion home. And maybe maybe a few words, maybe a few words on the illusions, the quotes that, that scatter. So we got... Right. There's epigraphs at the end of every chapter. And they're from... Very disparate sources. We have biblical books like the Book of Job. We have Carl Jung. We have Nietzsche, Bob Dylan, Dylan, Elvis Costello, um, obscure English poets, Eleanor Fargene. Tiger, Tiger. Tiger, Tiger. Yeah. Um, John Cale. So um, it kind of ranges from popular music to intellectuals to classics. Now is this simply a a reach to involve great past artists in the work, or is, do you sense a more 
strategic weaving of the illusion? Do you sense a thread throughout the illusion? I, I think it's both. I, I definitely think this book is self-consciously... Uh, Moore said I wanted to write a, a Moby Dick of comics. So, oh, that's wonderful. So there's a self-conscious gesture of, like, I want to absolutely put this form on a, on a new plane. While activating the past. While activating, yeah, and, and involving tradition, making it kind of the heir to some of these traditions. But I think some of the sources, like Blake and Jung, yeah. um, represent Moore's interest in the occult, the, the paranormal, the... Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the extra rational. Mm-hmm. And then I think some of the ones like Elvis Costello and Bob Dylan, I think he's looking for peers in terms of figures who have elevated a popular art form. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So serving the highest of artistic aims in a popular form. Mm-hmm. And who else to look to? I, I mean, and maybe that accounts for his admiration of 20th century America. Yes. He said that. I, I remember he wrote a few pieces around the time of the Iraq War, objecting to the Iraq War, a few mm-hmm. protest pieces politically. And he has said, he said things in that like, um, oh, people like me who criticize Bush and who criticize the response to 9-11 are, are scapegoated as anti-American. And he said... I'm not. I love the true heart of America, and the true heart of America is, and he starts talking about, you know, um, I can't think. I I don't have it in front of me, but mm-hmm. Bob Dylan, Louis Armstrong, right. uh, you know, David Lynch, Thomas Pinchon. Baseball. That's, I don't know if he said baseball. Um, but, yeah, the true heart of America is this un, this burgeoning counterculture, this visionary creativity. This, uh, the weird America is what's his name said. Yeah. Rorschach says to Daniel, some of us have always lived on edge, Daniel. It is possible to survive there if you observe rules. Yeah. That's about as much of a paradigmatic statement as you're going to get mm-hmm. in The Watchmen. Yeah. You're on the fucking edge. Mm-hmm. And you can make it. If you observe rules, mm-hmm. if you follow the nine three the nine panel form, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I think I'm going to call my brother. Okay. What's up, dude? What's up, dude? Dude, you're on the podcast. I'm live on air. You're live. So we're an hour in on on discussion of Watchmen, and we've covered many bases. But I thought it it might be cool to. To beam you in. Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite character? I always thought the owl had some really cool gear. Um, gosh, man, I wish I'd peeked at the text before. Dan, you, Dan Dryberg. Beam you a ring a ding. Yeah. Dude, I'll ring a ding you right now, dude. Dan Dryberg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got the, he's he's got some good tech. Almost like a Bruce Wayne vibe. Always appreciated that. Always a level head on his shoulders. Yeah, man. And then of course the comedian. It's what is sadder than the death of a superhero. That's uh, how Watchmen opens. Right. You never get to really know this guy. What you get is all the trauma he's he's caused throughout the years. Well, what does it mean to start a a comic book with the death of a superhero? It's an open wound, right? Yeah. The, the bleeding starts. Do you think they're conservative superheroes? 
Um, maybe it's in the it's in the era of Reagan, but isn't like Nixon still in charge? Like weirdly, yeah. Nixon shows up with the nuclear football. Conservative superheroes. I don't know. They certainly don't like hippies. But then there's there's Doctor Manhattan, who's kind of this um, nu- nuclear endgame. He was like a Vietnam weapon, right? That's kind of I what think, he how he became a celebrity. I think he was leveraged in the in the Vietnam War because he was he was created in the fifties, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In a lab accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it was he, an accident, right? Yeah. And then they yeah. use him to win the Vietnam War. I think that's yeah. So that's it's a counterfactual American history, right? Mm-hmm. Giant Doctor Manhattan wearing the tasteful loincloth when he is five stories high. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Runs rampant over the Viet Cong. Yeah, Doctor Manhattan goes from like lab accident to someone who seemingly has ultimate control. And this, like, very cool objective view on things, right? Um, yeah, he's John's favorite character. Nice. Why is that again? Be- well, I think that he is interesting because of the way that he is the the figure that... He sort of is the text because he sees the simultaneity of all the events and the way that the book is laid out in a grid. Right. So the, he- the smashing of the watch... The smashing of the snow globe. Yeah, so he's the intelligence of the book. Mm. He almost seems um, maybe jaded or just, yeah. uh, just he sees everything so he can enjoy nothing, right? Right. He's, he's the, almost begging for some sort of contingency or something that can slip beyond his... Um, his blue balls. Yeah. His giant giant perspectives right right (laughs) yeah just how american is dr manhattan do we have a dr manhattan any anymore doesn't seem like it it seems like we have a dr newark (laughs) it's not Slightly less advanced, but still developing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Worse version. Took um, a couple hits. Yeah. A little bit down on his luck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. So close, but not quite New York. Just one more question before you go. Sure. Who watches The Watchmen? Who watches The Watchmen? Is doing... We watch The Watchmen. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Right on, dude. All right, man. Well, yeah, I'll give you a call later, man. Appreciate it.